Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. On today's episode, we have Simon Beckerman, founder at Depop, one of the fastest growing networks that deals both with uh, an element of fashion and social networking as much as it does with e-commerce and reselling. But I'm going to gut straight to you, Simon, to first welcome you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. And second of all, because I want to hear a little bit about your evolution within Depop, and then we'll get into a little bit about your background. Okay. So Depop um, started in 2011 from an idea I had when I was living in Milan. Disclosure, I am Italian, although I have an English name. I was born and raised in, in Italy. Uh, British dad, Italian mom. Uh, so if you hear a strange accent, that's the reason. Uh, <laughs> it's a great, great accent. Thank you. <laughs> so I had the idea in 2011 in Milan. I, at the time, I was running a magazine called People in Groove. Magazine talked about... Uh, creative people in the fields of fashion, music, photography, arts, design, and um, basically, yeah, those fields. And the idea came because at the time we were going through a transition, especially in Italy, which was slightly later than the UK and the US, a transition from printed uh, media basically to online media. It was a very tough time because advertisers were a bit hesitant in buying ads online uh, with media like ours, but they were already reducing their spend on the print. So we uh, were seeing our business uh, reduce and we needed to find a way to keep it uh, alive. Amongst all the ideas I had was to build a marketplace. Also going online, obviously, but that would be a slow transition. And, and so I came out with the idea of Depop and it came out in a really strange way. I studied industrial design, uh, well, partially studied that, uh, in uh, industrial design at university. And uh, my background is uh, basically arts. I like to design, to draw. Uh, my dream at the time when I was a younger kid was to open a design studio. And so I said to myself, let me take care of the design of this. So I started drawing apps on a piece of paper and uh, I uh, set myself some challenges, which we can go through this interview. But in general, the challenges led me to design what what is Depop uh, today, and uh, which is uh, mainly... Uh, focused on mobile, uh, social network, and very focused around the community. Yeah. So it's it's good to get that background because I know you just threw that in there that you studied industrial design. But what's what's funny about your background, I think a lot of people who are anti-academic establishment will, yeah. will love to hear this, that you actually dropped out of your degree and yeah. you clearly took all the best of it and applied <laughs> it to, to the product. But maybe... Yeah. Walk us through that early version and what thinking you were applying to really cater to that first customer. Like I know you mentioned briefly that you drew it on napkins as a sort of proxy for mm -hmm. building the app, but what were the key things, the three product attributes, if you will, that you hypothesized would be the killer features to get people to use this? That's a good question. So I would start by saying that at the time when I thought about Depop, I knew that there were two fundamental aspects around this uh, app which I was designing, which would uh, possibly make it a success. The first one, obviously, was that we were going through a phase where uh, apps actually were becoming a thing. Uh, Apple had just introduced the uh, App Store, I think that was 2009 or 2010, so just recently, um, just a couple of years earlier. And apps were booming at the time. And I realized that this new technology was going to bring forward new kinds of users. As always, disruptive, disruptive technologies uh, create new markets. And uh, I realized that 
by tapping into the communities I was working with with the magazine, I could put these two things together and create something or discover the, uh, something new. So the idea behind Depop initially was let's create a marketplace for a new kind of generation of people who I assume will be growing up in the next years and will want to use a marketplace in a new kind of way. So not like eBay or the web, for mm -hmm. example, no? or Gumtree or Craigslist. Mm -hmm. So that was the first main assumption, put these two things together. And so product-wise, I gave myself the ch these challenges, which I was mentioning before. The first one was that I wanted people to be able to buy, sell, and discover products in a social way. So uh, one thing I set myself as a goal was to give the ability to people to follow each other so that they could see what the others were either listing for sale, uh, who they were following, or what they were buying. Uh, and that was because going back to my magazine times, I learned how uh, referential purchase was uh, very important. I buy something much more easily if I am recommended, being recommended it by a friend, you know, or someone I'm influenced by. So I wanted to create this whole social mechanism behind it. Another problem I set myself to solve was I wanted a, an, an area in the app or a way in the app for people to be able to discover new things that they didn't know about. And that was more or less through us. Uh, so editorial curation. And these were mostly the two main questions product-wise that I asked myself. I mean, if, maybe this is a bit of a cheeky yeah. question, but I mean, Instagram was around in those days. Yeah. And some of those features, you know, paralleled Instagram, but Instagram was built around social network yeah. first. And then now, much later, are they including some, yeah. some sort of e-commerce elements to it? Was it that you saw some similarities in the utility of those features in that Instagram just wasn't leveraging them appropriately? Did you not even, were you not inspired at all by what those guys were doing? Or, or did you see where it was miss, it was a missed opportunity that they didn't know how to do that? And, and if so, were you originally really a social network that was just applying quickly into e-commerce? So we were heavily influenced by Instagram, but not Instagram by itself, but the UX uh, behind Instagram, which I think and I thought at the time was a really uh, revolutionary thing. I remember having these problems written on a piece of paper and I said, how can I solve them in the best way possible? So I took an iPad and an iPhone and I put them on the side and in the middle, a uh, piece of paper, pencil and rubber and rulers. Mm. And I, I started opening apps on both the iPad so I could look at two apps at the same mm -hmm. time. And for each problem I had to solve, I, I tried to have a look at how others solved it, mm -hmm. even if in other areas. So I quickly realized that at the time something was coming, coming up, which I believed could have been um, the next 10 years of how to do let's call it social networking, whether it's e-commerce or photography or uh, expressing a feeling. Mm. or And it was the concept of having a home feed, uh, a discovery section, a profile, etc. Mm. A button where you just press and you can post the specific thing that uh, platform enables you. Mm. And when I saw that, I remember being amazed because I, I thought... I don't know if you remember a guy called Evan Williams. He basically mm -hmm. uh, invented a platform called Blogger. Mm -hmm. That was in the first era of the internet. <laughs> mm. Or we could say the second because the first one was the era of the uh, portals, probably. Uh, Alta Vista, Excite, etc. Mm. He invented or basically he popularized the, the concept of having a homepage where you could post news or thoughts and there would be a two, one or two columns and they would start from uh, the most recent and go down to the oldest. No? And mm -hmm. that basic concept has been picked up by everyone in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. As far as uh, seeing many publications, uh, media publications uh, using that 
format. First of all, Wired, I remember in the early 2000s. When I saw the Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and many others, I said, okay, these apps have reinvented the mobile uh, in the same way that even Williams invented the web in a sort of way. So I think I'm going to stick to this new paradigm, which is, again, the feed, the explore, the profile, etc. So I have been heavily influenced by these apps, slightly more so to Instagram, because I think, and the fact that Facebook bought them, uh, I believe is a demonstration that they were probably the best in executing mm. this uh, paradigm. Mm. So it's good. I mean, it's good to hear because I think for, for anyone who, who feels like there's a lot of things that need to be reinvented, um, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're just merely optimizing for a new use case. Yeah. And, and in this case, it was a new use case for a new community and a community yeah. that was underserved at mm -hmm. the time. And just to help you brag a little bit, I'm just going <laughs> to read out some of okay. the numbers that you guys have in you know a TechCrunch article recently this year, it said that you guys had about 13 million users with 100% year-on-year growth and 50 million revenues according to their calculations. I don't know if you want to yeah. elaborate on that, but um, that that's pretty impressive. Yeah, uh, actually, we have now reached 16 million users, mm. nearly 20 million items uh, listed around 140,000 items listed per day. So it's um, around a million active users per day. So that's going very well, yeah. It's going very well. And, and, and I want to jump into that in terms of both fundraising, but also in terms of your community. Mm -hmm. So let, let's start off with community first, because I think it's great to have a product that you've thought through with a preconceived notion of what is required from a design mm -hmm. point of view to make it successful. Sure. But ultimately it comes down to community, right? It yes. comes down, who are the first early users? Is the interaction that they have with their first, their first customers a positive one? Mm -hmm. Did you need to help that or did you not need to help that? And if it failed, how do you recover? Because, you know, a few bad impressions <laughs> spreading around the web and then all of a sudden you're yesterday's news. So walk us through those early days of acquiring the first sellers, yeah. setting up a trust system between them and the buyers, mm -hmm. and then enabling that all to happen for effectively a group of people that may have not even done anything on other platforms to begin with. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, this, to go back to what I was saying before, the first aspect was the product, which I described more or less now. The second aspect was the community. The idea was that, uh, so a funny, funny anecdote, when I went to my first VC, I told them the first part and the VC looked at me and he said, okay, that's really cool. Uh, I see these things every day coming into my office. Why should I invest in you as opposed to the ones I saw yesterday? Mm. Obviously, he didn't see these things every day, but uh, the point was features are features. Uh, everybody can do these features. You can be the first, but someone can come and do them better. And, you know, uh, the the important thing, as you also said, is the community. And I thought that I was the right person to do Depop because of my background in creative communities. And I thought that I could take that design that I created and put it together with a community that I was working with before, and it would work. And this community initially was a community of uh, creative people, uh, artists, musicians, stylists. And in this community, there were a lot of uh, collectors, vintage collectors, uh, uh, um, small brands, uh, stylists who uh, liked to swap clothes very fast, uh, etc. So the first community I thought would work with Depop was the fashion community. And so what we did was we hired, basically we hired boots in uh, fashion markets. We tried to find the smallest and most uh, cool fashion markets we could find in Milan. And we tried it even in London when we launched in London later on. And we brought in uh, as many of these people we could before launching. Uh, with a promise that when we launched, we would uh, feature them, obviously, and uh, they would be prominent in the app. And so 
Within a couple of months, we brought in around 100 sellers. Out of those, probably 10 uh, used, really used the app. The other ones never used it. They just did it because they were friends. Mm. <laughs> and, but these 10 actually set the tone for what the app was going to be in the future, which was really good. And so when we launched... So just, just to yeah. clarify that point, when you say they set the tone, would you, would you retrospectively say that they defined the culture of Depop as much as you did? Or would you say that you kind of influenced it? Uh, I think it was a teamwork in a sort of way. Uh, these people were highly creative people who worked in fashion and knew what were, what were the most interesting and inspiring things that people could like. And so we had an explore section in the app. And in that uh, section, we we basically uh, what we call popped items. So mm. we with a, a command that we only we have, we push items in that section. And working together with them, we selected the best things that they were listing to feature in that section. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them maybe didn't take nice pictures and we helped them to take nice pictures. And, and so that's how we initially prepared the app for launch. So mm -hmm. when, we, when the launch day came, we already had, uh, let's, <laughs> it's funny to say now, but we had 10 people selling mm. uh, cool stuff. Uh, some vintage, some new, but also the new ones were really unique pieces. So uh, that's how we initially began seeding our app. So that's on the supply side, but now let's talk about the, the demand side yeah. and building trust between the two. So, you know, you launch, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a PR push, whether it's marketing on the tube or whatever, like at some point, and maybe you can talk about your costs to acquire, sure. but it, at some point, you needed to get people to land, install, and look, and buy. Mm -hmm. And then you had the inevitable, like, dissatisfaction, returns, issues, yeah. ratings, rank. Maybe walk us through how you, how you thought that went through, and how, do you, how did you roll it out? Yes. The f when we launched in Italy, uh, so we launched in Italy as a test. Mm -hmm. The idea was to launch in Italy, make it work to a minimum uh, viable way, mm -hmm. and then if successful, move to another city abroad. Uh, we had some uh, options, but maybe we talk about those later. And so we launched in Italy. We lined up some media uh, friends. Uh, we hired a PR, usual basic stuff that every company does, no? So we had some media talk about us in, in Italy. And luckily, because this was 2012, we were very, very early on in this app thing no and so uh, people saw this app and they thought oh this is a really interesting thing you can buy and sell from your pocket so many people started downloading the app pretty soon and we started noticing many interesting things first of all uh, the first main thing thing we realized was that people from the fashion world weren't really interested in our app mm. although they were the creative people that we wanted to be there to to create the vision, the inspiration for the other people. The main uh, people who used our app were, um, we found out, weren't these people. But as you said before, a completely new community. We discovered that there were so many uh, people that were not selling online didn't work in fashion, didn't li live in the uh, main cities, but lived outside the city, so they didn't have access to fashion. And they uh, used uh, our app to basically open up their wardrobe. And they started listing so many things on the app and making friends with many other people and sometimes buying and selling locally through a group of people who became friends, uh, sometimes shipping across the country, but in general, many, many people, most of them who never had uh, anything whatsoever with the fashion world. Yeah. So so it was an unexpected group. Yeah. It was outside of what you had originally scoped mm -hmm. out, but it sounds like there was product market fit regarding that use case. Yes. But you still had to deal with people being dissatisfied. And I think that any new marketplace that's created almost always runs into that issue. Yeah. 
how do I get quality supply? Yeah. How do I get quality demand? And how do I settle when things are not happy? And how did you deal with user trust ratings? And, and how did you make sure that people didn't think of Depop as a place where people dump crap stock? Actually, that was a very difficult thing to do. So the, uh, the majority, as I said before, of people who came on, they were inspired by these creative people who we continuously, even after launch, we continuously brought in new uh, creatives uh, to help with uh, the, the, the other part. And so they started listing things with bad pictures, uh, things which um, were low quality, uh, broken, uh, sometimes uh, even fake things. We had people who tried to scam, you know, all of these kind of mm. things that uh, marketplaces encounter early on. So this was really, really hard. We initially um, uh, realized that we had to scale support pretty quickly. Uh, thankfully, we started receiving funding from uh, investors and that uh, helped us to mm. hire uh, and grow faster in uh, on those teams. Uh, but the way we solved it was basically continuously talking with all these people one by one. I remember having three kinds of notes in my um, notes app. Uh, and I personally reached uh, with three different messages, depending on what these people were doing. Bad pictures, bad description. Or... Dear sir, this is really crap pictures. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. Uh, and I used to basically send tens and tens, hundreds of these messages a, a day myself. Mm. Uh, your item is really good. Uh, we would like to feature you in the explore section. Uh, would you care about looking at how the other pictures are there, maybe trying to make them better so we could feature you? And if we feature you, you're going to be selling much more easily. Or dear user, your dear seller, your um, description is not quite clear. So if but the pictures are nice, or both, no? Uh, so basically hard work. Like you basically had to monitor everything and intervene quite a bit. Uh, constantly, constantly. And uh, things that happened, though, were really amazing. For example, before Depop, when you listed something for sale anywhere, you weren't supposed to take good pictures. Uh, you go on eBay, you take a crappy picture of something, doesn't matter what the picture is. Mm -hmm. You list it on eBay and someone is going to search for your item at a certain point mm -hmm. and um, they're going to find it and buy it. But on Depop, because it's more of a community and people are there mostly also to get inspired, you need to have good pictures. And so people started taking really nice pictures because we were... Uh, inspiring them through mm. the curation we were doing. Yeah. And so slowly, what happened was that many, many people became really good. Yeah. <laughs> and we found thousands and thousands of people who just started from Depop and became so creative. Uh, the, the biggest example of all is um, a user on Depop called Brigitta, who... Uh, we hired full-time in our company because she was so good at listing her items and taking pictures. And she became one of the main photographers on Depop. And she shot a couple of our campaigns who ended up on, uh, on the underground in London, New York, on buses in Texas. So just to give you an example of how nurturing a community day to day constantly mm. can lead to... Uh, something which you might not expect, which is the creation of new kind of creatives, mm. which... for I mean, this is yeah. more of a generic question, maybe not specifically to Deepop, yeah. but when do you think it's time to migrate the stewardship of that quality and network to the community itself, where you have the community monitor the community rather than, the, you know, Simon monitoring the community? And uh, when is the right time for a company to start thinking about that, if at all? Does we, it work? We are starting to do that with, uh, um, in regards to items uh, which may be fake or have some uh, problems like bad descriptions, etc. So uh, we hire um, a community of, let's call them experts in different brands. For example, there's a person who is very much expert in Chanel. Mm. And she has 
a special count where if she sees something that she knows everything about Chanel and she can detect from a picture if there's any kind of problem. And so she uh, goes around every day looking for Chanel things. And if she sees some, something that doesn't work or something that has something wrong, she pushes a button and that thing, that item goes straight into our community support backend and they can deal with that later. So we have, uh, we're starting to do that in, mm. in that sense. And when do you think that you started that too late or do you think you like when, when should a company start thinking about different elements of community management? Like if you had to pick the order of community management, at what point do you think a founder should should relinquish that to a hired community manager? And then at which point do you think it's the right time to transition that to a community managing a community? Initially we were all more or less community managers. Uh, I remember the we, when we were in four, we had an official community manager since the beginning, mm -hmm. and she was doing community management and customer support. Mm -hmm. I was doing product design, customer support, community management. The product manager was doing customer support. So initially, everyone does everything. And it's very useful because, especially when you're small, you're all sitting around a desk and you all help each other and you learn from from everything. Mm. And slowly, as the company grows and you need to hire more people, then you start creating a management structure. But the ways you create management structures are uh, depends on what kind of uh, company you want to build. There are many kinds of ways and many books you can read. You know? uh, Amazon calls it the pizza way where mm. they they don't create a manager unless this pe this person has... Uh, can fill up a pizza uh, of people, two pizzas actually, if mm. I remember correctly. So when they do a meeting, if you put two pizzas there and every there's one uh, slice for each person, then you need a manager. Mm. <laughs> Google has another way, but that that comes in time slowly. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that the the role of your or the the nature of your customer has evolved? I mean, I know that when you said you started off originally. Um, there were people who were trying to sell, uh, whether it was high quality or low quality is not the question. It's mm -hmm. more of like they were just trying to sell things that were in their closet. Whereas now, from what I understand, a huge part of what drives the business is people who have access to limited stock inventory. Yes. And then are making a killing by making it available to other people in a way that would otherwise not be available. Maybe walk us through your customer and how that's evolved. So a uh, funny anecdote. Um, uh, Depop was born, uh, was has been launched in 2012 as a test in Italy. Our main customers are what we, or marketers call Generation Z, Z. Mm. And th these customers, uh, I can't remember the exact age, but if you think about it, in 2012, they were probably 10, <laughs> maybe nine, some of them. So they have grown. And the uh, incredible thing is that Many of these people became uh, grew within Depop, starting from zero, and some of them became so big that they now employ people, and they're not even twenty. Ninety percent of our users are below twenty-six. Uh, you can imagine that many of the professional people who sell on Depop, they have started when they were really young, and some of them. Uh, learned how to go around in flea markets and find stuff, uh, going to vintage stores and find things. Others found warehouses full of things. There's this guy who's got a shop on Depot called Hooked BHM, uh, and he sells uh, shoes, sneakers, and he found, he doesn't want to say, obviously, where <laughs> he finds them, but he found a place where they sell uh, shoes that have um, unsold stock, and he resells them on Depop and he he now made so much success that he opened a physical store. Wow. So there are people on Depop who are probably around 18 to 20 who may who earn up to 200,000 a year. And this is really really interesting. And how, and, how I mean for, yeah. with that evolution how have you had to evolve the product? to keep up with that? Because I think it's different when you're building a product that's democratizing selling stuff to a product that enables 
somebody who's selling 200K annually of, of revenue to like really stand out? Or do you try to normalize that versus any emerging one? Since the beginning, the app uh, exists for the individual, not for the big companies or the big brands. Mm -hmm. In fact, we only have very basic functionality for people who need more stock or tracking or these kind of things. And we are uh, adding some as our sellers grow and need more features. Uh, and we will continue to add more, but we are experimenting. We are doing that slowly and observing how and what we need in order to not uh, dilute the product too much. Let's go back to a point you brought up earlier about internationalization. Yeah. You said that you were contemplating some ideas about which country to go next after Italy. Mm -hmm. I think it's very safe to say that cultures, even within Europe, um, are drastically different about how they buy, what, what, um, do they use credit? Do they use debit? Like everything can vary from country to country. Yeah. And something like Depop, which is intrinsically taste driven, mm -hmm. would have probably seemed like not necessarily obvious to me that internationalization would have been a given or easy. So maybe walk us through the first country you went to and, and how much have you had to adapt what you guys do to cater to different geographies? Sure. Initially, when we launched in Italy, uh, so the, uh, the, main, uh, the main way people uh, pay on the app is through PayPal. We are slowly introducing uh, a new system called Stripe, which I think most of the listeners uh, know. But initially, and still main today, is PayPal. And um, when we launched in Italy, not many people were using PayPal. So there was no actual proper way to let people sell within the app by having a transaction happening within the app. So we let people transact outside of the app. That was very problematic because, as you can imagine... You lose people. Yeah, exactly. And um, and we did add PayPal and people started using it, but it was a second, it was a plus, it was an extra thing. And when we launched in the UK, the situation was the opposite. Everybody wanted to use PayPal and enabling people to transact out of the app was problematic uh, for the same reasons. So uh, the first issue and the first uh, problem we had to solve was that we had to decide which one of the which side of the two we wanted to stay what would we want to have an open marketplace where anyone could transact in the in in any way they wanted which was would always be would also be useful to grow the community without any restrictions or do we let them um let or do we um make them do we require them to sell only through paypal uh, we choose the second we chose the second one obviously uh, as you can see today and um it worked we actually managed the to um, make the italians use paypal more paypal was happier with us mm. they actually even sponsored some events with us mm. And that was the first challenge. The second challenge was that, uh, weirdly enough, um, in Italy, there is a community of people who, when they opened their wardrobes, they found a lot of things which their mothers and fathers bought in the 80s and 90s, which in Italy was much higher fashion. Italy is a fashion country, and in those decades... There were many, many fashion designers who produced a lot of nice things from Armani, you know, Prada, Gucci, Dolce Gabbana, etc., etc. Uh, Moschino, a, a brand that goes a lot on Depop. And so Italians had a lot of that. And so the average selling price of items in the UK is half. Uh, in the UK, we trade a lot of street style items, streetwear, um, sneakers, um, um, other kind of brands and uh, even uh, f a little bit of fast fashion on Depop, used fast fashion. Uh, so that was another challenge, uh, trying to keep the quality high uh, in the UK. But we managed to do that because UK also has a very, very high culture around vintage. So we worked, we worked on that a lot. And uh, the U.S., the same. Uh, they have a very high culture uh, on vintage, so that worked very well. But even then, 
uh, Italy is still uh, the place which has the higher average selling price. Yeah, yeah. so you, so you one problem solved was the payment. Yeah. The other one was the inventory of goods. Yeah. I presume, presume that you could buy from, if you were in the UK, you could buy from the Italian yeah. one. So it didn't really matter. It's just that you wanted an even-based yeah. uh, inventory. So how about in terms of um, localization, how team in, in expanding your team internationally, and also the culture of the community, did that need help? Uh, I'll answer the last one first. The community uh, is run more or less in the same way. I think the culture is more or less the same everywhere. Mm. It works in the same with the same mechanisms. Um, tastes might, might differ from one area to another, mm. uh, but the ways we handle the communities are more or less the same everywhere. Um, Italians are a bit harder to manage because they like to do a lot of out of app, <laughs> if I may say. Mm. Uh, so they require a little bit more customer support. UK, uh, of all the countries, is the one that requires least in that in those terms because they do um, most of the transactions in the app. They are very kind on that mm. <laughs> that side, very honest. So community uh, more or less didn't have to change a lot. In, in terms of the team, customer support, more for Italy, less for the other countries. UK, which was the first country we launched after Italy, is one of the countries where, where we see the most usage. And in the UK, people use Depop, use apps in general, uh, more than many, many other countries in the world. Hmm. So scalability was a big issue for us. Uh, we had to rebuild the back end a couple of times. <laughs> We still have a lot of legacy code from the beginning. Um, I remember when we brought in our first big influencer, the backend failed completely and mm. instantly as soon as she posted on Instagram. And that was a big problem for us. Actually, the, the backend took us a full year of nearly a full team to, to redo to a point that we weren't able to build new features, most, many new features uh, for, for most part of a year. That was a big issue when we moved in, in the mm. UK, yeah. Mm. I don't feel we had many other particular issues so with the internationalization. With internationalization, also, there's probably brands that stand out more than others. Yeah. And you mentioned some of the Italian ones. You mentioned some of the ones that were predominant in the UK. But I think one of the things that's really impressive about where you are today is that you have quite a good community of influencers and you have a pretty good inventory of very good brands, not just, you know, uh, clearance brands. How did you go about, or, you know, you've you raised quite a bit of funding today. Yes. And how did you go about acquiring quality, like in terms of spend? Maybe walk the listener through how much of that was just flat out organic and how much of it was you reached out to specific people who were potentially had large communities that, to bring them on Depop or how much you paid to, to, to bring on people who had access to inventory from some of the key brands. Just maybe understanding sure. how you think about acquiring customers. Um, we did a lot of experiments around that. So we tried many, many different ways of acquiring customers. Uh, we Obviously, the, the biggest story that we tell, when, especially when we go fundraising, is that the growth of Depop is for the vast majority, uh, organic. That is a great story. And because this is what enabled us to um, also uh, uh, be funded, we try not to pollute it too much. So we try to um, do as less paid marketing as possible. But we try, still try, and we do a lot. We tried all kinds of things from the basic things like Facebook advertising and Google. Uh, Instagram advertising, mm. that works a lot. Uh, YouTube works very well. And we did some unconventional things. So first of all, we brought in some influencers which were very, very small. So we, we realized that, let's say there are two kinds of influencers that we, we think about. One is the big influence, influencer with a lot of numbers, mm. uh, millions and millions of followers on Instagram, for example, or on YouTube. And there are many, many small niche influencers 
who have a small amount of followers, but they have highly influence. Um, um, they highly influence their small communities. So uh, they both work, although the second one works much better. It requires much more effort. We have a large team of uh, community uh, managers. They continuously every day work with uh, hundreds of potential sellers and influencers and on the marketing side also. So we tried by paying small influencers on YouTube by doing, for example, what we call deep up holes. Uh, not all of them are like that. Actually, the majority of them now are not. Initially, uh, they were, but you still can find some which we did initially pay. So Depop Hall is when someone buys something from Depop and then does a video on YouTube to show what they bought. Uh, there are many haul videos. You can find eBay haul videos or uh, Etsy haul videos. And we created the Depop ones. Those were a lot of fun. And as I said, initially we paid uh, small amounts to small uh, influencers. And now most of them are done uh, organically. Other kinds of things we did was um, by paying bigger influencers to open a profile on Depop, sell their things, promote us on their Instagram. Uh, some of them we paid with money. One of them we actually offered to become a partner of the company. Uh, we gave her a stock option and uh, to her and her business partner stock option and uh, she had uh, uh, at the time one one and a half million followers on instagram now she has i think 16 million which is a lot and so that's another thing that we did but we experimented in many other ways um, through events we created little markets uh, where we invited people to come and sell and they invited their communities those are the the SaaS metrics ideal of three times lifetime value to cost of acquisition. Did you guys think about these experiments in the in the grand scheme of like what you knew the lifetime value of any one particular buyer could be? Initially, no. Yeah. <laughs> when you're small and you need to go fast, you just go and we we choose we chose a couple of key metrics that we thought were important initially, and then we added more and more, and the lifetime value has been uh, a key one uh, uh, since a couple of years now. But we add KPIs as we go, mm. and we might remove some, mm. uh, depending on uh, what are the goals, uh, mm. uh, mid-term and long-term. Yeah, so the, the spend on acquisition was really more experimental than it was like capped at a target yeah. because you knew the unique economics. Is there, is there one KPI that, that your organization hovers around at the moment? Is there something that you guys all hover? Yeah, well, there are the uh, uh, most important ones that I guess are important for many companies like GMV, mm. um, uh, signups, sales. Uh, we, we look at NPS, for example. Uh, we are starting to try to measure brand in different kinds of ways, um, brand equity. And then there are many smaller ones that relate to these bigger ones that we measure on a daily basis. And is there any, any sort of surprise metric that you've discovered that if you are on top of just manifests itself as revenue? Like, for example, when people follow three or more people, boom, there is naturally a sale within a week's time. Like, is there any, something that you've noticed that is a recurring behavior and, and you optimize the organization around that? Or is it still very much a fluid thing? No, we have a lot of those. I would uh, um, uh, shoot this question to our CEO. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, well, maybe this is a good point to talk about yeah. that. So okay. as, a, as a founder, many founders go through a journey where they find that their role evolves. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's good you brought this up. Uh, maybe walk us through the point when you felt and when your team felt that bringing somebody external was the best thing for the company? This was around two, mid to, between mid-2013 and uh, beginning of 2014. So pretty early on, uh, I started the company in 2011. We launched in, in Italy in 2012, UK mid-2013. When we launched in the UK, 
I decided together with the board that uh, it would be more useful if we found someone who was more acquainted in running faster growing startups. Um, as I mentioned before, I studied creative fields all my life. I saw myself a bit like, if you want to make a comparison, the Google founders, mm. uh, um, very skillful in specific things, but maybe not ready yet to run a company which requires fast growth. And I was very enthusiastic of letting go of that uh, role because I knew I had a lot to learn. And so in January 2014, we hired a COO in 2000, mid-2013. And in January 2014, after six, more or less six months of him being COO, we promoted him as a CEO. And uh, that's when I uh, left the role as a CEO and I became a creative director and uh, helped him on... Uh, Many, many aspects from the strategy to the vision, product, marketing, community, brand, uh, everything basically that wasn't around finance operations um, and uh, investor relations and etc. Was that hard for you? Uh, funnily enough, it wasn't hard until I did it. Mm. <laughs> I was really happy to do it because... It, Building a startup initially is very stress, stress, uh, stressful. And if you don't know how to do it properly, uh, or especially if you don't know how to relate with investors in, a, in the right way, it becomes very, very stressful. And so I was happy to let go of that role in order to bring in someone where I could learn. But the day I let go, I realized that I didn't have the possibility to take some decisions that I could, that I was used to take, and I needed to learn a completely different skill, which was the skill of influence. <laughs> no, which I still have to learn, by the way. Um, so that was really difficult. Uh, having said so, I I think that. By doing so, we put the company, although with some hiccups here and there, we put the company into the right path. And the, the company is today like where it is also because I decided to do that. Mm -hmm. Whether then maybe in the future I decide to launch another company and be the CEO of a new company, mm -hmm. that's another story. Uh, I for sure learned a lot. <laughs> what, what advice would you give to founders on thinking through whether they should bring somebody to replace them. Even, it doesn't necessarily put them out of a job, they can take a different role, but when would you recommend to founder to think about that as a possibility? I think it depends on the kind of company, the kind of uh, investors you have, the kind of uh, person you are. Uh, there is a phase in the company where you need to be very, very structured and process driven. There are more phases, I guess. Uh, we will encounter this again in a very important way, probably when we are more than 500 people. But the phase when you start getting funded by venture capitalists is the phase where you need to start doing things very, very seriously. And either you are a fast learner and you are... Actually, no. Either you are... Um, um, the kind of person that can run structure and processes in, in a proper way or you're not. And, and in that case, I think you can still continue to be CEO of the company. But if you are have a creative background like me, which is very good for the very early stages of the company, probably that's not uh, the good. The, my suggestion would be it could be better if you continue to take care of the vision, uh, all of the creative aspects together with a CEO. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the suggestion I would give is be very careful the CEO you, you look for because it's going to be like a husband and wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you need to be very aligned and you need to be very patient because you're going to give your company in put your company in the hands of someone else and it can be very very difficult mm. 
but I would say that there is no specific rule on whether you should do it or not. It depends on you. Yeah. Yeah. So if that brings us to modern day, mm-hmm. imagine you're sitting in front of Simon of 2011. Mm-hmm. As a concluding thought, yeah. what are the three pieces of advice you'd give to Simon of 2011 to have helped you through this journey? <laughs> That's a very good question. The first advice I would give definitely would be to read many, many books. <laughs> uh, there are so many interesting books out there that you can read from people who have done startups, ex-entrepreneurs who became VCs or Harvard professors who wrote uh, uh, very interesting things uh, on uh, growth, marketing, uh, and even philosophy books, uh, 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 books about how people think, psychology, etc. So that would be one uh, big advice. The second advice would be find yourself a technical co-founder from day one. Um, an e-commerce, uh, sorry, an e- yeah, um, an e-commerce social network uh, is a platform, is a, a product that requires a very, very high dose of uh, technical skills, and uh, you can't do it without a technical co-founder. Uh, and in my case, probably I would recommend if you're someone more like me, even a operational co-founder. And the third one would be uh, go and do your company in, um, well, this I did, so I wouldn't recommend Simon to do it differently, but actually I will still say it, uh, do your company in a city where there is a very strong ecosystem that can help you to build a company in the best way possible. Uh, Funding, team, uh, know-how, Etc. I started in Italy, and uh, I knew that many. Uh, I could have gone to Milan to do it, uh, but I decided to go to London because of this, and this was the best choice I've ever made for the company. And I see so many young people who come to me and ask me for advice. Maybe they even show me their decks, etc. And I always tell them, go to London, go to New York, go to San Francisco, go to Berlin, or Go where there is an ecosystem that works. Then you can launch again in your country. But that would be the third advice I would give. Well, excellent. Thanks. Simon, that was amazing. Uh, covered a lot of ground and, and appreciate the insights. Uh, and hopefully people will get a lot of value out of that. And if anybody wants to get in touch, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, my email is very easy. Uh, Simon at deepop.com. Excellent. Well, with that, guys, thanks for joining us. And until next time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.